Welcome everyone. And I just want to uh, begin uh, these Dharma reflections with uh, appreciation for uh, your practice and your presence, you know, all of you here, in the different uh, conditions and situations that you, um, that you are in. And it can be, um, as we did yesterday evening, there's something really precious and valuable about just taking a moment to appreciate. Yeah. Appreciate uh, each other, appreciate ourselves perhaps. Appreciate the practice and the teachings, the community. So that's the important part. <laughs> I'm going to speak for probably another 45 minutes, but you know, that's the important part that you can keep going back to. There's any sense of appreciation or gratitude that's, that's there, that's accessible to us in any moment. So I want to say... Uh, speak a little bit more about something that we've been uh, touching on and to unpack it uh, more. And when I was looking at my notes before the talk, I was smiling to myself <laughs> because some of you have heard Nathan and myself uh, speaking quite a few times. And, it, and I, I, kind of, aren't they, I, I kind of look at my notes and I think, aren't they getting bored? <laughs> Hopefully it won't, it won't sound like the same stuff. Or at least it will it will sound like the same thing, still interesting. And I've just kind of raised the bar <laughs> of of what I need to achieve here today with you. So I wanna I wanna speak uh, a little bit more, unpack a little bit more um, the way that um, experience is constructed, the way it's fabricated. Yeah, the way it's it's put together, we can say, and the way um, that can be really helpful to to understand. You know, when there's an when there's an experience, yeah. there's an object in attention. So right now, possibly the object in your attention is is what I'm saying. Yeah. Right? There's an object in attention, um, but there's also a way of relating to that object in attention. And this is the, the important thing that we want to kind of lift up into our awareness, yeah. bring into our awareness, bring into our uh, area of interest. Yeah. So there's an object and then there's a way of relating and that way of relating um, you know, includes the, the state of the heart and mind, yeah. which changes and fluctuates the moods. Um, sometimes we, can, we refer to this as the atmosphere in the attention. So what is in the attention and then the atmosphere yeah. in the attention through which we're meeting the object. And the reason we kind of bring up this uh, theme of the ways of relating yeah. that are conditioning our experience over and over again <laughs> every retreat um, is because this is often like the missing piece, yeah? the thing that we don't notice and we're not aware of, and yet it has uh, such an impact on our experience. Yeah? 
And part of a big part of why we don't notice the way of relating is because the ways that we relate, yeah, our moods, our mind states, and heart states, as Nathan said, the atmosphere in our attention is habitual, yeah, it's a habit, yeah, that's there. Patterns of relating, and because it's habitual, um, it becomes transparent or less conscious to us, yeah? and we don't see the part that it plays, and we don't see the part of um, that it plays, when we don't see this, um, we lose a great opportunity. Or oh, another way of saying it in the positive is by learning, yeah, by remembering that there's a way of relating, impacting our experience, and learning how to turn our attention to that, um, opportunities open up for us. And I want to um, explain this uh, or give an example of this um, that came up in the questions today, yeah, and and that question, that really important question, the first one uh, this morning around uh, how we relate to pain. Yeah, how do I relate to pain uh, when it comes up in practice? Yeah, so we can already see. <laughs> yeah, so what happens when there's pain? Yeah, or discomfort? There's an object in attention, which is yeah. If we're talking about pain, it'll be sensations. But then there's a way of relating to those sensations which will actually impact the experience of pain itself and how we are um, experiencing it, how problematic it is. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. So, um, you know, the different ways I was suggesting, you know, of working with pain today were all around changing that way of relating, yeah, from the habit of attention that fixates, yeah, that narrows down on it, yeah, and focuses on it, yeah, contracts around it, to a different way of relating, which is spacious and expansive, yeah, that's one way we can think, what are we doing? We're changing the way of relating, um, from aversion, yeah, that's another one, something that's pushing away, yeah, I don't want this pain, yeah, I, or I need this pain to go away in order to begin to meditate. Yeah. So the good meditation will start. Is the desire coming in? It's another way of relating. Yeah. And so we're changing that and we're saying, ah, how, instead of pushing it away, instead of needing to get rid of it so that I can begin to practice, um, what about if, if I engage with it skillfully? Yeah. And when there's less aversion in experience, the degree of how problematic that pain will be um, will change, yeah. And important to say here, it's not about just you know forcing yourself to sit with the pain. Yeah, it's also about attending skillfully because, as the question um, indicated uh, today, there um, there may be history of uh, injury. Yeah, the pain is also calling attention, so we also need to attend skillfully. So we might need to change our position. Yeah, might not be skillful to sit for forty-five minutes without moving, for example. But we do all of that, yeah, not through that, what I was referring to as an agenda this morning of getting rid of, yeah? Can you see the difference there? Yeah? And so, you know, this is something that like, we can't um, talk about too much, at least not in, in, um, in, my, in my view. And, and we can really see, ah, there's an object, and then there's the way of relating, and that comes together to form the experience, yeah? shape the experience. 
So we're interested to see what happens when we bring into consciousness more and more again and again. Ah, there's a way of relating here. It's not just the thing, you know. It's not just the sound, you know. It's not just um, the sensation. It's not just the thought, you know, whatever's going on. It's not just the object. It's not just the breath. It's also how I'm relating uh, to it. What happens when we bring that into consciousness, when we remember there's a way of relating at play? Yeah? And when we remember, the way of relating shapes experience. And hopefully we can um, start to see the possibilities there. And I want to... Um, I want to use a teaching story to kind of really unpack the possibilities here. And it's one I use a lot because I really like it. Uh, and I, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's pretty powerful, even though it involves something that we don't do on retreat when we practice, but, you know, still powerful. So this is a story from the teacher Ram Das, who probably many of you have heard of. Um, um, started uh, his path meditating, but also uh, exploring um, hallucinogenics. Yeah. And so um, in, this, in this story, this is kind of probably what we would consider early on in his practice when he was still uh, living a more conventional life, but not completely. So he was, uh, I think he was a professor at Harvard or something ridiculous like that. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, he, he's got, he goes home to dinner with his family, with his parents and his brother and his brother's wife. Yeah, a good Jewish family like mine, Friday night dinner, uh, quite an establishment. Um, and he's, he's quite dreading the experience. And so uh, he decides to support himself and he, he takes a trip <laughs> before he, he goes. So he arrives at dinner and he's on LSD, but we'll, we'll ignore that part yeah, and just see what happens in the experience. Because we can do the same thing with our meditation practice. And so they sit down to dinner and what he is used to seeing are the normal family dynamics uh, begins to unfold. So he's sitting there and his brother's sitting opposite him and his brother's wife is sitting next to his brother and the parents are sitting at at the ends of the table. And he and his brother start to engage in their usual dynamic. And, you know, his brother says to him something like, um, why are you such a hippie, you know? This look really doesn't suit you, yeah. And because of the particular influence that Ram Das is under, uh, two things happen. One, everything goes into slow motion. <laughs> so things are happening slow, slowly. And two, he has visuals uh, to the experience that he normally doesn't have. So his brother is making this comment, and what Ram Das is seeing is an arrow coming out of his brother's mouth and kind of arcing over the dinner uh, table and heading towards him, him yeah, towards Ramdas himself, yeah. about to hit him. Yeah. And so um, this is important because it's in slow motion. <laughs> so he can see this yeah, happening. Yeah. And when he can see this happening, um, he remembers there's a, uh, what's, there's, what's my way of looking right now? Yeah, there's an arrow heading towards me from my brother. I'm feeling defensive. Yeah, and what happens when I feel defensive? I want to hit back. Yeah, I want to hit back. And so he can almost feel himself. He can see the comment forming in his mind to shoot another arrow, to shoot an arrow himself at his brother. But instead of following 
that pattern, yeah, he imagines grabbing the arrow midway <laughs> before it hits him, grabs it, puts it down next to his plate, yeah. And instead of shooting an arrow back at his brother, he um, says something that manifests as a heart, yeah, kind of moving from Radas and across the table over to his brother. And so he'll say something like, you know, you and your wife look um, really loving today. Yeah. Just a second. Okay. And so this goes on uh, around the dinner table for quite some time. Yeah. So they're sitting there. Ramdas's brother, whose name I don't know, is following the usual pattern of the relationship and shooting these arrows, we can say verbally. And Ramdas keeps picking them up in the air, yeah, grabbing them, putting them down, and then sending back comments, yeah, that um, are like hearts, yeah. yeah. So, you know, ah. Uh, I met your colleague the other day and he was saying such wonderful things about the work that you're doing. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm really, you know, I really appreciate, <laughs> um, you know, that shirt that you're wearing or whatever it is, you know, it doesn't need to be serious stuff. And so this dynamic carries on and eventually it starts to take effect. So obviously we can probably, hopefully already feel Ram Dass's experience has already changed, Right. Because as soon as he's not getting hit by the arrows, he's just yeah, getting them out of the way. And he himself is not shooting an arrow back, but he's saying something positive. His experience has already changed. Over time, everyone's experience changes around that table. And when he tells the story, he says, you know, by the end of dinner, yeah, um, the whole family is in this really loved up space, yeah, which is not their usual dynamic. Yeah. So Ram Dass's brother and his wife got their arms around each other. The parents are smiling. Um, there's a really warm, beautiful, uh, loving atmosphere. Yeah. And so I, I'm giving this example, and I'm going to unpack it more and more. Because yeah? what is significant here? We see the habit, and we see the possibility of change. Yeah? And we see what happens when we remember this is going on, but it's not inevitable. It's not unstoppable, yeah? doesn't have to stay like that, even though, even if, like Ram Dass and his brother, we've been in this story for more than 30 years, yeah? We can still change it, yeah? We can still change it. So this is really significant. Change is possible. We can change the habitual way that we relate, yeah? To our own experience to another, yeah? We can change it from the habit to a way of relating that is um, in alignment yeah, with a deeper understanding and a deeper intention uh, for us. And when we do that, our own experience changes and of course it can also change the experience of others. Yeah? So we can see these cycles um, of what we're doing. So the opening up of possibilities here. Yeah? And I, I really am going to kind of go slow here because the possibilities are First of all, the possibility to remember there's a way of relating at play. It's a way of relating. It's not just that nasty comment heading my way. Yeah, There's a way of relating that's impacting. 
possibility to get to know what's my habit here? Yeah? How do I relate to discomfort? How do I relate to this kind of comment? Yeah? How do I relate to hot weather? Yeah? Or to rain? Doesn't matter to what. We have habits. Yeah? What, are the, what are other possibilities that I have? Yeah? Get to know different ways of relating and how they shape and impact our experience. And over time, yeah, this impacts the flexibility and pliability of our mind and heart. Yeah, this remembering. Yeah. Because when we remember, yeah, we're already stretching yeah, the heart and mind. It's a flexible organ. Yeah. And when we choose, yeah, instead of being moved, as Nathan was saying yesterday, the easiest way, which is the way we've traveled before, yeah, instead of going down the easiest way, we go a different way. Yeah, as we do that, we're both changing the possible paths that are available to us, um, but we're also just increasing the flexibility of the mind. So it can also find new paths, new ways yeah, to go down. So I've said this a couple of times, I'm going to say this again. The ways that we relate um, are typically habitual, they're patterns, yeah? they're habit patterns. Um, and we're interested to know them yeah? so that we know their impact and so that we can attend skillfully to our experience. Yeah? So it's not a waste of time <laughs> to find yourself yeah? down that groove again. Yeah? It's not a waste of time, it's an opportunity. Yeah. Say, ah, this is what's going on. What is this like? Get to know it. And also remember other possibilities. And already when we're changing the approach, when we say, ah, this is here again. Get to know it. Yeah. There's already a shift. Yeah. There's already a shift, which is really significant because we're bringing interest to the experience instead of being completely um, taken over by it, yeah, by the way of relating. We're bringing interest to the way of relating instead of completely um, being uh, controlled by it. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Okay. So if we go back to the Ramdas story, um, we can see perhaps that the, the habitual way of relating that and the dynamic between him and his brother was, you know, we can say a type of competitiveness, which was like putting each other down. <laughs> yeah. So there's both the aversion to the other yeah, and the kind of desire to beat them, yeah, to be better than. Yeah. You can see those, those two movements, um, aversion and desire usually come together. Yeah. When there's one, there's the other. And uh, I want to kind of pause a little bit with this because in our um, experience right now, what we're dedicating this week to uh, in a meditation practice, um, aversion of des- and desire come up quite a bit. Yeah? And they're actually um, two out of a group of five ways of relating that are referred to as hindrances, as things that get in the way. Yeah, when we practice meditation. And um, after almost a day of practicing, they're probably going to sound quite familiar when I mention them. Yeah. 
these five hindrances, and I want to say here, uh, before I even go into them, um, we often speak about them in relationship to meditation practice, but they come up in our daily life all the time. (laughs) So it's really worthwhile becoming familiar with them and learning how to work with them skillfully. So the five are um, aversion and desire. As I said, two sides of one coin. When um, there's aversion to something, there's desire for its opposite. And when there's desire for something, there's aversion to whatever is present right now. (laughs) So say, you know, I have a desire as I sit down to practice to have a... um, to have a, a, a you know a calm meditation, yeah. and then with that the other side of that is I'll have aversion to maybe the agitated mind that I'm meeting, or even just the slightly distracted mind. Yeah. So they come together, the aversion and the desire. There's another pair, um, so aversion, desire, one and two, and then we have restlessness and tiredness. And again, tiredness came up in the question and response session, very, very common at the beginning of a meditation retreat. Um, so the, the, the restlessness, kind of too much energy for the system, or the tiredness, too little energy for the system, are another pairing uh, of, the, of the hindrances. And um, the fifth hindrance is doubt. Yeah. So uh, often we experience it as uh, confusion, not knowing what to do, yeah, or uh, just a sense of um, what's the word is escaping me? Um, pointlessness, yeah, or a sense of pointlessness, yeah, like what you know. I don't know what I'm doing. The teachers don't know what they're saying. Uh, <laughs> this is the wrong retreat for me. I should have done something else. Yeah, what's the point? You know. This mind, you know, they're talking about, but no one's got my mind. <laughs> the Buddha was talking about all this stuff, but he didn't, you know, he didn't know what my mind was like. This, this is my doubt. That one, <laughs> you know, often comes up on retreat. You know. uh, no one's had to deal with this mind. Yeah. Except for me. Anyway, so we can see. And those hindrances, they also come up with often a sense of self. Um, and the Buddha had a lot of really beautiful, helpful uh, teachings about these. Um, and my favorite simile, which again I use a lot in the teachings some of you have used, is when he um, describes our minds. Uh, he gives the image uh, of the mind and heart, the citta, mind heart, as a, a pool of water. Yeah? It's a pool of water that is uh, in its natural state, very clear, yeah, and very quiet and very calm. And then what happens when each of the hindrances appears? So he says, you know, when desire appears in the mind, it's as if someone threw a colored dye. I always imagine it as purple, I don't know why. (laughs) As if someone threw a colored dye into this pool and the pool is purple, not clear. Yeah, but you can choose any color. It doesn't have to be purple. It's just mine. Yeah. And so we can see our desire when it's there. It colors the mind. Yeah. 
And, and maybe you've already had that experience. If not, it'll come. You know, when you're sitting in meditation and you start to think about lunch, and then that thought about lunch just takes over. That's the only thing. That's desire. Yeah. And it just colors the mind completely. You can't see, think uh, of anything else. Yeah. When aversion uh, is present, it's as if the water in the pool is boiling. Yeah. And so there's bubbles and there's steam. And again, what happens? We can't see clearly. Yeah. This is the obscuration. This is the hindrance. Yeah. Blocks the clear seeing. When um, dullness, tiredness, in, in the old English translations, this was translated as sloth and turpa, like a really blah, low energy, heavy energy. Yeah. When that is present, it's as if the surface of the water is covered in, in a, a layer of vegetation. Yeah. That really kind of strangles, yeah. stops the, the oxygen, stops uh, the seeing, but also becomes really stagnant. Yeah. And I think we can get that sense when there's a lot of tiredness in the system. When there's restlessness in the heart, and body and mind it's as if there's a wind blowing across the water and making waves yeah? so again there's that movement which is obscuring kind of blocking the clarity of seeing and when there's doubt uh, it's as if someone put their hand into the pool and stirred up their bottom yeah and so the water is full of soil full of earth yeah and again, you can't see anything. Yeah, it becomes uh, completely uh, unclear. And so I, I, I love this simile because um, it really shows us that the hindrances are also ways of looking and ways of relating. Yeah. Can you see that? Yeah. When they're present in the mind, they color our experience. Yeah. We can really feel that with aversion. <laughs> One of my favorites. Yeah. Another example. Um, if you're sitting there and you're waiting for the bell to ring, <laughs> there's really aversion to this meditation already. Yeah? And we're waiting for the bell to ring. There's aversion. It colors the experience. Yeah? We become more and more restless. Yeah? Because there's the desire for the bell to ring. There's the aversion to this meditation. And time just starts to feel really, really slow really, really slow, and the restlessness grows in response. Yeah. So we can see these um, hindrances, they colour our experience, they're ways of looking, uh, and we're not aware of them. Yeah. This is the, the, the important thing. We confuse the way of looking, yeah, we confuse the hindrance with the experience. Yeah. And we don't see that these are two things, the hindrance is a factor in the shaping of the experience, but it is not the experience. It's a factor shaping it. If we can attend to it skillfully, then the experience changes. And so this is really, um, yeah, very powerful uh, teaching when we apply it. So the hindrances are ways of relating also, and they color the lens of perception. They impact how we see and what we see. And that... Um, example of how the sense of time changes. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It seems to slow down when there's aversion <laughs> to what's going on. Yeah. It seems to slow down.
So the, in- the hindrances, we can say, are um, when they're present, they're ways of relating that um, are an expression of dukkha. They're an experience of dukkha. When we don't notice them, when we're not aware of them, and when we don't attend to them. They themselves are a a limitation, a contraction, a friction, and a demand. And we can say an expression of dukkha. Dukkha, um, suddenly can't remember if we already uh, unpacked that word, but even if we did, I'll do it again. Uh, Usually, uh, most commonly translated as suffering. I like to translate it, well, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's translation, ill-being, the opposite of well-being. When we're in a sense of friction with our experience, and there's a sense of um, unease, a whole spectrum from just a little bit of a niggle, just a little bit not at ease, to really, really suffering. That whole spectrum is dukkha. Yeah, and we can see when the hindrances are present and they're unseen, yeah, we mistake them from, for the experience. Yeah. There's dukkha. Yeah. And we can... Um, I'll, I'll break that down uh, a little bit more in a moment, but I'll just check. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. People in the hall, you're going to need, if it doesn't, you're going to need to go like really like no with your head so that I can tell because I can't see your expressions. Or kind of thumbs down. Doesn't make sense. You're not making sense. Say it again. And, you know, it's really okay to do that because I want us all to be together on the same, uh, kind of on the same journey here. So if we go back to, uh, to Ram Das and his experience, what happened there? Yeah, we can say he recognized there's a habitual pattern here of a way of relating. Yeah? There's a version coming at me and there's a version coming back. Yeah? Recognize that and put it down. Yeah? Such an important part when he just grabs that arrow, puts it down next to his plate. He says like, in his imagination, at some point, there was like a whole kind of a whole line of arrows next to his plate because he kept putting them down. So there were a lot of them. What supports that shift? So I will say primarily what supports that shift is two things. One is interest. Yeah, interest. Really important. Yeah, not just taking things at the face value of the habits, being interested in our experience. And the other is an attitude of metta. Yeah. M-E-T-T-A. Yeah. Metta. And um, we're going to speak a lot about metta. This is just the, the opening uh, bit. Uh, metta translated very uh, most commonly as loving kindness. Slowly changing. <laughs> um, we like to speak of it as goodwill well-wishing, friendliness. Yeah. And one of my friends is a Pali scholar. She translates it as a loving intention. Yeah, we can say friendly intention. Intention of friendliness. So there's an attitude of metta. And metta is uh, the first in the list of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abidings. Um, and what's interesting, if we look at this story, that all four of them are there. Yeah. 
with with uh, Ramdas and his exploration. Yeah. So there's that attitude of metta, the wanting to develop, wanting to bring in friendliness rather than enmity and aversion. Yeah. For for oneself and for others. Yeah. We also see this kind of it's two sides of the same thing. If I want to be happy here. <laughs> then I need to do something about this dynamic that's causing unhappiness to both of us. And that's an intention of metta there. Uh, but it comes together with uh, compassion, yeah? the sense of there's dukkha here for all of us. Yeah? And meeting that yeah? is compassion. Um, appreciation and gratitude, the things he notices yeah? and says to his brother, he's looking through the lens of uh, unselfish joy, appreciative joy, you know, the third of the Brahma Viharas. And there's equanimity holding the whole thing together <laughs> because there needs to be uh, that equanimity of not getting pulled into the habitual reaction. You know? So right at the beginning, there's an intention of metta and there's a kind of being able to lean into equanimity. Yeah? That steadiness, that balance of non-reactivity and not getting pulled in to the habits of reactivity, uh, but actually holding the space so that an appropriate response can come through. Yeah. So we have the interest, yeah. we have the attitude and the intention of metta, which includes the other Brahma Viharas, and we have that leaning into equanimity, you know, non-reactivity, you know, which is another way of speaking of dukkha, by the way. <laughs> you know, dukkha as non-reactivity. And I'll just say um, that I, uh, so we've mentioned um, these four as the Brahma Viharas, the, that's the Pali term, terminology, um, most beautifully, I think, translated as the immeasurables, yeah, qualities that cannot be limited, yeah, they're boundless. Um, sometimes, and Nathan touched on it yesterday, they're, uh, it's a really beautiful colloquial translation, uh, our best homes. Yeah, they're our best homes when we think about when we're at our best. Yeah, ourselves, other human beings, we're embodying one of these. Yeah, compassion, unselfish joy, um, friendliness, unconditional friendliness, all that balance of equanimity that can hold. Yeah, all of experience without getting uh, knocked out of 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 balance of sync. Um, and I like to talk about them as four sisters, so that's how I'm going to refer to them. Probably I'm just going to say it because they're like they have a family relationship in the best possible sense. Yeah, they're four sister, uh, four sister sister qualities. Yeah, that are related uh, to each other. And when we reflect, you know, on these four sisters, on these best homes, on these boundless, immeasurable qualities, um, we know for ourselves when they're present, yeah, there's, uh, they bring with them a sense of ease, a sense of release, uh, a deep well-being, yeah, the opposite of ill-being, yeah, the opposite of dukkha. And what we do in our practice is we turn to them, yeah, again and again, yeah. We learn how to bring the heart and mind yeah, to um, these immeasurable qualities. Yeah. Turn towards them again and again, and we bring them into being. Again, Nathan was talking about that last night. 
Yeah, we cultivate them. We give birth to them in our own heart and mind and in the world. Yeah, we bring them into being. We bring them alive over and over again. Yeah, so practice over and over again. Um, and we're interested to see what happens to our experience when we look, when we relate in this way. Yeah. We look and we relate in this way. And we can relate to the hindrances as well through the lens of the Brahma Viharas. Yeah. This becomes really interesting. So we can relate to anything through this. Uh, I'll just give a little example. I can't resist. I was resting earlier this afternoon because I had a very early start this morning, <laughs> not to do with this retreat. And uh, there was a lot of noise. Yeah. There was a lot of noise, um, which is not typical for where we live, but for whatever reason, there was a lot of noise outside. Um, and the, the strong, you know, response, you know, trying to, trying to rest and then there's a lot of noise is aversion, yeah? It can be quite strong. And this is where this practice becomes so valuable because yeah, notice that, <laughs> yeah, and bring metta instead. So not pushing away the aversion is really important. We're not trying to get out of here, which is, again, our habitual way. We meet aversion with aversion. Yeah. Really good at that. Yeah. But actually we bring something else, bring metta. Yeah. And the more that is something we've developed, the more it becomes accessible. This is the pliability of the mind um, that we, we talk of. So hindrances will arise. It's part of the human condition. Yeah? It can be really helpful to remember that. Hindrances will arise. Um, you know, the Buddha spoke about this and he said, yeah, the hindrances, you know, you're not going to get rid of them until you're really completely enlightened, whatever that means. Yeah. They're going to arise. But the way we relate to them changes. Yeah? And that's where, that's the gateway to freedom. Yeah? That's the gateway to freedom. And so... What happens when we remember there's a hindrance, there's aversion, there's tiredness, there's restlessness, whatever's arising, we just remember this is part of the human condition. Uh-huh. This is part of the human condition. We've got a human body, heart and mind, there's going to be hindrances. Uh-huh. They're going to appear, yeah? both on retreat, in our meditation practice, in, our other, in other life situations. But the fact that a hindrance has arisen is not the end of the story. Yeah. It's not just, okay, there's a hindrance, that's it, suffer. <laughs> now just sit there, lie there, suffer away. Yeah. No, no, it's not just about that. Yeah. We can bring interest. How is this hindrance impacting my experience? And how am I reacting to it? Yeah, just like with that example that I gave with having a rest. And typically we'll react to the hindrances with push and pull. Yeah? Either we'll have aversion towards them. Yeah? We'll say, I don't want you. <laughs> Go away. Yeah? Or we'll, have, we'll get uh, mesmerized into them. You know? Oh, this desire. Or, oh, this restlessness. You know, I need to follow it. Yeah, it's telling me to move. I'm going to move. Nobody's going to notice. Yeah? Everyone's got their eyes closed. So we get pulled into them, we get hooked into them one way or the other. Um, the aversion to what we don't like, the desire uh, for something else. Yeah? It doesn't even have to be something we like, it's just something different yeah? a lot of the time. So there's this push and pull onto experience, which is how we respond to our experience all the time, including 
um, to the hindrances. We also habitually respond to hindrances with belief and limitation. This is what's happening. This is the experience. This is real. Yeah? This aversion, this restlessness, this tiredness, it's real. It's true. Yeah? And it's going to last forever. Yeah? That's another one. <laughs> and just watch your mind. Somewhere in there, there's that sense. Um, and again, we can see that, you know, we might be experiencing restlessness or tiredness in a meditation and there's a real sense of this has always been here and it's going to last, yeah, forever. And it's real, yeah. Then the bell rings, just notice what happens. The bell rings to end the meditation. The pain goes, the restlessness goes, the tiredness goes. Suddenly we've got loads of energy. Anyone notice that today? It's fascinating, yeah. And it indicates to us what's going on, yeah? The way we've been relating to it has been impacting it. And as soon as the bell rings, and there's not a sense of, oh, this is here, and it's real, and it's going to last, yeah? Something frees up. Something is released. So we can remember that. We can bring that in. So when we remember with kindness and with interest, this is not going to last, yeah? I don't need to believe the story it tells. And this is not who I am. Because as I said, with the hindrance, the sense of self also appears. And I become the restlessness. I become the tiredness. I become the pain that I'm aversive to. I become this really greedy person who can't stop thinking about lunch. It's not who you are. And you don't need to believe the story it tells. It's just a story. Just like the image of the pool that the Buddha gives. It's colouring the perception. Colouring the perception, but we can remember that. And we can, you know, I find it really helpful to say to myself, hindrance. It's a hindrance here. Hindrance. And sometimes it's hindrances, very often, more than one. doesn't matter. Hindrances. And what is this? It's a habit of the heart and mind. Yeah, that's all it is. It's not a big deal. It's a habit of the heart and mind arising. Yeah. And because it's a way of relating, it's impacting experience and colouring perception. But like any way of relating, it can be changed. Yeah. Like any way of relating, in its nature, it's impermanent. Yeah. It's inconstant. Yeah. And we can nudge it along. <laughs> By changing, first of all, the way we relate to it. Yeah? So we bring in that interest into the experience. We bring in metta yeah? into the experience, that intention of friendliness and care. Yeah? We bring in compassion towards the suffering that's present. There's dukkha in this struggle right now. Yeah? And we bring in equanimity and um, any appreciation. Yeah? Any of these. You don't have to bring all of them. Yeah, but we can bring in any of them. And then we can begin to play with our experience. Yeah? So something that's really helpful with um, the hindrances is playing with the body fabrication. Yeah? Playing with the bodily fabrication. How is the way the body is impacting experience? If I'm feeling a lot of tiredness, maybe I'm slumping. Yeah? Yeah? So what happens when I you know, reaffirm the posture? What happens if I maybe stand up? What happens if I um, just 
get a sense of spaciousness. This helps with all the hindrances. Sense of spaciousness. Open up the space. If there's a restlessness or tiredness going on, that uh, kind of imbalance, what happens if I bring attention to rebalancing that? If there's a lot of restlessness, that means there's more energy and less calm. So maybe, again, the spaciousness and the grounding and the soothing with the breath, breathing in a way that's calming. If there's... um, tiredness or dullness in the mind imbalances in the other way a lot of calm but not enough energy and just that, you know, what happens if we meet tiredness and say, ah so much calm wow, so much tranquility that's what tiredness is and there's not enough energy so can we bring energy again with the spaciousness with the way we breathe with opening the eyes that more light comes in so we can play with our experience through the body yeah, and through uh, the space of awareness to respond appropriately to our practice, uh, to what's arising. Yeah. So these are just a few uh, tips and I'll just repeat them because they're important. Check with the posture. Yeah. Check with the posture. See if... Um, you can play with the breathing in an appropriate way yeah, to bring more energy or to bring more calm. Um, if, the, if it's doubt that's arising, grounding. Yeah. Yeah, grounding, that sense of the contact with the ground. Ah, grounding. Yeah. And just this moment, yeah, just this moment, I don't need to figure it all out. Just this breath, this moment. An intention of metta with all of them. Yeah, with all of them. And particularly with aversion, metta is a great way of meeting aversion. Bringing a sense of friendliness or appreciation into the moment. The same with desire. What happens if there's a desire for lunch and I just think, ah, what what am I grateful for actually right here and now? Yeah, letting go of that movement to the future. Coming back here. So we can see um, our Dharma practice as the possibility of possibilities. This is a phrase from Nathan, which many of you are probably familiar with. The possibility of possibilities. The possibility of possibilities to change the way we're relating. To change the way we're relating. First of all, to recognize, to be interested in, to play with, and to change how we're relating. Um, to experience so that the way we're relating is more intentional and less habitual it's in alignment with our intention and it's responsive to what's arising in our experience we're moving uh, shifting along this kind of thread of ways of relating from um, the unwholesome to the wholesome so from the unwholesome ways of relating like the hindrances which are Dukkha builders yeah, to the wholesome ways of relating, which build the opposite of dukkha. And we're interested in exploring what brings release, what brings spaciousness, what brings well-being. Yeah. And of course, metta and the Brahma Viharas are ways of relating also. 
Their ways of relating, their ways of looking at experience. And there are ways of relating that express freedom, that bring release, that uh, bring spaciousness, that bring well-being. This is something that we'll be exploring um, over the day, starting with a guided meditation this evening. And it's actually something we've already been doing. This morning and yesterday we've been welcoming and allowing our experience. That's already a meta-attitude. When we welcome experience, rather than picking and choosing, I want this and I don't want that. When we do that, I'll repeat what I said, this reduces, dissolves that tendency towards push and pull on experience, picking and choosing. I want you and I don't want you. And that movement in itself, that movement in itself is dukkha. Is dukkha. So we keep exploring this and we will keep exploring this. Isn't it wonderful that we have six plus days to continue to explore this, to continue to explore the remembering there's a way of relating happening, the recognition, what way of relating is present right now, and where is it leading, what is it building, and the possibility to cultivate, to nourish ways of relating that bring release, that bring relief, that bring freedom, and that bring well-being. And we're doing that for all beings, for all beings. Not just for one being. Impossible (laughs) to do it just for one being. But also such a wholesome, wonderful way of relating to experience and to our practice when we remember this is about the well-being of all. So that's what I had to share uh, this evening and maybe... um, We'll just take a moment of quiet together to bring this to a close. May our practice together continue to nourish each of us and all of us. And may our practice together support the well-being, the relief and the release of all beings everywhere. So I thank you for your listening and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.